Well, good morning. It's uh, good to see uh, you all and be together and worship with you this morning. Uh, if you have a Bible, would you please turn to uh, chapter 4 of Genesis? Uh, of course, if uh, you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find our text uh, this morning on page 7 in your worship guide. I encourage you to, to turn it up and so you have it in front of you this morning as we go through uh, uh, Genesis 4. Uh, the last few months, we've been working through the opening uh, chapters of Genesis, which tell the, the creation story of how all things, including us, came into existence, how things were properly and purposefully designed and ordered, and how uh, things then, how it all went so terribly wrong. And, and two weeks ago, we talked about our earthly parents, Adam and Eve, and how they began this pattern that continues even to this day. This pattern that we sin, we hide, and we blame. But that God's response to us sinning and hiding and blaming is consequences and grace, justice and mercy. And that even on the very first, in the very first pages of the Bible, we, we see that ultimately a Savior would come. And we know that Savior to be Jesus. And so we know that even when we sin, we hide, we blame, we know that Jesus saves. And today as we move into chapter 4 of Genesis, we're going to see this pattern play itself out in Adam and Eve's two sons, Cain and Abel. And so in, in chapter 3, we see the origin of evil, if you like. And then what we see in chapter 4 is really this evil fully birthed. Uh, what, we, what we were pregnant with in chapter 3 gets fully birthed and expressed in chapter 4. And at one level, that is exactly what the story of Cain and Abel is about. It, it, it's a warning to us about what sin does to our lives. In particular, how powerful and yet at the same time how deceptive it is. And so let's get into it uh, starting in verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve his wife. If you've ever heard the phrase to know in a biblical sense, well this is where it comes from. Uh, so Adam knew Eve, uh, his wife, in a biblical sense, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. I have gotten a man. Now Eve is a literalist. She named her son Got or Gotten, you know. I mean, you can't blame her. She didn't have one of those baby name books like everyone else. She had to figure out this whole thing on her own. And so she calls him Got. She calls him Gotten, but, but there's something, I think, bigger happening here than just her naming him Gotten. When, when we see, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, I think something bigger is going on. And if you go back to the curse in Genesis 3, the curse um, on the serpent, part of it said this, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so I wonder if Eve, when, when, when she says, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord, if in her mind she thought, this is him. This is the offspring that will bruise, that will, will crush the head of the serpent. This is the, the Savior. My son is the rescuer that will come to save the world. I just wonder if this is what was going through Eve's mind. Is this, is this the one that will come? And again, she, 
bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. And in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. And so we've got these two boys, they're brothers, and they're farmers just like their dad. If you remember, Adam was created to be a gardener to work in Eden, and then God drove him out out of the garden to work the, the, the ground outside of Eden. And so Adam was a farmer, if you like, and his boys were farmers. The elder boy, Cain, he ran the combine, you know, he took care of the land and, and the harvest, and his brother Abel took care of the animals and the flocks. And it says this, it says, in the course of time. Now, I want to stop there with that phrase for a second. In the course of time. Because this is an important thing for us to remember when we're reading the Bible. And, and that is that the Bible, in the Bible we get snapshots of people's stories. We don't get their entire lives. That God picks the, these stories and tells the story of salvation through them, uh, the, the story of salvation through Jesus through them. You know, we, we know there's sin in the world, we, that we need a Savior, and that one day the Savior would come. And so he grabs bits of the story to tell the story that he wants to tell. And that's what we, we get here. And so when we're reading about Cain and Abel, it starts with they were born and then they were men. We don't know how. Anything that happened in between. We don't know what happened in their life. We, we just know that now these guys have grown up and they're bringing offerings to the Lord. Again, we, we don't know, know whether they were commanded to bring an offering. We don't get to see that part of the story. We also don't have any reason to believe that this is the first offering that they, that they had ever brought. We, we just know that, that now it... it it had come time to bring their offering. It's, it's at the time when the harvest is coming in and, 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 and there's fruit on the vine. It's when the, the time when the animals are giving birth to new animals and there's a firstborn of, of the flock. And so they are bringing these, these things back to God. And, and what we do see throughout the scriptures is that the people of God always do this. They understand that all their stuff whether that stuff be money or in a society like this where, where they don't have cash money yet, where they, we have this fruit or they have these animals, they know that their stuff all comes from God. And so they give a portion of that back to God to, to thank Him and to live by faith. And it's typically the first fruits. You see, Abel gave the, the first fruit of his flock. It's giving back to God at the beginning, saying, God, this animal, I had two sheep, now I have three sheep. And, 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 and so now I, and I'm going to give you this third sheep back to you, trusting you that there's going to be a fourth sheep. And so there's this faith component in this. And this is what the, the people of God have always done, saying, God, now I'm going to manage the rest of what you've given me. And it says, and the Lord, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. Why? Well, there's lots of debate and ideas about why this is. Some would say maybe it's because Cain brought 
fruit and Abel brought an animal offering, implying that there was a sacrifice necessary. But we don't have the sacrificial system in place yet where this was a, a command for that. So maybe that's the case, but I'm not sure. I'm not so sure. It, 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 also, it could have been that Abel brought the firstborn of the flock, and we don't see that Cain did that. And I think that might actually be a little bit, uh, there might be a little bit of merit to, to that one. We can't be fully sure why it is that God was displeased with Cain's, and he was happy with Abel's. But we can get an, an inkling by looking at the rest of Scripture. And if you flip over to Hebrews, Hebrews 11, there's this famous passage uh, that many people call the Hall of Faith, uh, listing all these people who live by faith. And in verse 4 of Hebrews 11, it says this, By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. So one thing we, we do know, we, we, we don't know the, the, the reason that, that God accepted one and, and didn't accept the other, except we know that Cain did not give his by faith while Abel did. There was a component of faith. That's why I think it may have something to do with the first fruits idea, with the firstborn idea, because that is living by faith. Just a couple of, of, of verses Earlier in Hebrews it says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It's the conviction that God is going to show up. It's the conviction that God is going to provide, the conviction of things unseen. And I wonder if that's how Abel was living his life. And it was different from how Cain was living his life. It was this conviction of the unseen. Abel lived by faith, by giving the firstborn of his flock. He's saying, God, you provided me one. I trust that you'll provide me another. And he's also maybe saying, I believe that you will provide a Savior one day. Because this was surely what his parents would have communicated to him. But, you know, I wonder if that whole, you know, what his parents communicated to him, I wonder if that actually was something that was working against Cain. And again, this is not detailed in, in, in Scripture. This is just look, me looking at it and wondering. But I wonder if Adam and Eve had perhaps said to Cain, saying, listen, you are, you are perhaps this offspring that will save. God, God said, we will get a man and he will save. And he was their firstborn. And they looked at him and said, you are that guy. And, and so Cain doesn't live with the same faith that his brother does. Instead, he trusts himself instead of trusting in God. And he gives, I think, more out of duty. And let's watch how this plays out. Back to Genesis 4, verse, verse 5. It says, So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. And the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, you're, if you remember back in, in, in Genesis uh, 2, Adam and Eve were given one command, one command only, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so when you eat of the knowledge of the tree and good and evil, what do you get? Knowledge of good and evil. And so Adam and Eve and their children and all of us now have the knowledge of good and evil, which means that we have a conscience. It means 
It, it doesn't matter if you're a follower of Jesus or not. If you're a human being, you have a, you have a conscience. And we all have this general knowledge of what is right and wrong. And it exists inside of us. And so he knew, Cain knew, how he was supposed to be living his life. He knew that his offering was going to be unacceptable to God. When, when, when God says to him, if you do well, he's saying to him, you know what well is in this situation. We don't know because we, we weren't there. We don't get to see um, all of it. But he knew what it was supposed to be, what his offering was supposed to be, and why God was not pleased with his offering. And yet he brought an offering to God anyway, knowing that God was not going to be pleased with it. Why? Well, just like many of us, he wanted God to accept him on his own terms. He thought, I'll just bring this offering and God's got to be happy with it anyway. And then God looks at his brother's offering and said, yes, I accept this one. And no, I do not accept yours, Cain. And so that made him angry and it made him sad, depressed. It says his face fell. You see, he assumed God was going to be okay with it. And God's like, I'm not okay with it. And so he was angry with God because God didn't accept him on his terms. And he was depressed, thinking, if God is not going to accept me the way I want to live my life, the offering that I want to bring him, then my life just sucks because I, I, I need to be in control. And we really see in these verses here how sin operates in our life. God says, why are you angry and why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you don't do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. Remember that word, um, desire, from two weeks ago? Sin desires you. It desires to dominate you. It desires to control you. And he gives the picture here of sin crouching. It is crouching in a, in a, in a, in a posture with a, a desire to appear small and insignificant. But the problem is sin won't remain small and insignificant in our hearts. I mean, imagine one day you're, you come down the stairs into your kitchen and there in your kitchen is a lion. Now, if you saw a lion in your kitchen crouching, what are you going to do? For a start, you're not going to turn your back on it, are you? Why? Because you know that if the lion is crouching, it's probably going to spring. It wants to have you. It wants to overpower you. Similarly, sin crouches so that it can spring, so that it can have you. And that is precisely what happens to Cain. Cain is resentful. He he feels bitter about his brother and, 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 and God seeming favor upon his brother and see, seemingly the, the benefits of his brother's life. He's resentful and this crouches and then springs into his life in the form of violence and murder. And that's what sin can do in our hearts. Sin tries to make itself look small and less prob problematic than it really is. Sin says, look, I'm not a big problem. I'm not a big deal. Or it says, look, everybody, everybody does this. It's okay. Or it's only a small thing. God's not so bothered with this. It's fine. It's just a small thing. Maybe there's an area of your life where you know sin is crouching. And you've told yourself it's not a big deal. It's, a, it's just a small thing. It's under control. 
Maybe it's the, the issue of jealousy and you say, oh, it's just a small thing. Yeah, I get envious and resentful, but I, you know, I never let it show. But it, it's actually crouching in your heart. Maybe there's an anger issue and you go, it's just a small thing. I do blow my top from time to time when I, I drive sometimes, but, but I never hit anybody. I, I've never been violent with my family or my kids yet. But it's crouching. Maybe you secretly find yourself looking at things online that you should never be looking at, and you say to yourself, everyone does this. It's, 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 it's such a small thing, but it's crouching, and it's wanting to have you and control you. That's the image that's being used. It uses the description of a powerful animal about to attack. It's not standing there with a spotlight on it. It's not standing in the, the middle of your living room going, Yoo-hoo, I'm right here. No, sin crouches. And sin's desire is for you, to control you, to dominate you, to leap upon you when you can't see it coming. And what God says to Cain is, listen, you didn't do what I asked you to do. And now your anger and your depression has brought you to this door. You open that door and sin is crouching there to leap onto you. It's a tender warning that he gives. Verse 8, and Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, it looks like it could go either way at this point. And then when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel, and he killed him. God just warned him. God just got done warning him, and he goes off and talks to his brother, and then he kills his brother. What was he thinking? Well, 1 John gives us a picture, and 1 John... 3, verse 12, it says, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. It wasn't just that Cain's offering was not accepted by God. It's that Abel's was. He was jealous. Yes, Abel did things the, the way God commanded, but Cain wanted to be able to show God that he could control his own life and that unlike his brother, he could create his own terms for his life. And he's like, God, why don't you accept me on my own terms? And look at what God says to Cain. God says, I, I don't accept your offering, but listen, here's what's happening. I care about you. You walk through this door. Sin is crouching. And it's going to leap on you. Even as Cain is moving towards more mur murder, God pursues him. God knows that Cain is angry, resentful, hurt. And yet God comes after Cain. He comes to him and says, why are you, ang why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? It's like he's saying, Cain, what's going on in your heart? He asks questions about the condition of his heart. What is happening within you, Cain? 
And then again, notice verse 9. This, this is once, once Cain has, has committed murder, God comes after him again. God keeps coming after Cain. And he says this, Cain, where is your brother Abel? There's a real similarity here, isn't there, in terms of like how God deals with Adam as well in Genesis 3. What happens when Adam sins? The first thing God does is he comes to him and he asks, Adam, where are you? God comes asking questions. God comes looking for Adam. God comes looking for Cain. God comes looking for us. God comes asking questions. Where are you? Now, when God asks questions, it's not because he doesn't know the answers. The questions, if you like, are not for his benefit. The, the questions are for our benefit. God is asking questions because he wants Cain to have the possibility and the opportunity to respond. He wants Cain to be able to consider the condition of his own heart, to take responsibility, to repent. And that's how, often how God deals with us in, in our sin. When we're on the edge of sin, God often comes after us. When we're in sin, God often comes after us. And he says, where are you? What's going on in your heart? What's happening in your spirit? He gives us a chance. He wants us to respond. He wants us to repent and be reconciled. That's often how God deals with us. And so God knows, but he asks anyway, where's your brother? And there's that famous, that famous line, Cain says, I don't know, am I my brother's keeper? And so you see the movement here. He's gone from sinning and hiding emotionally in his depression and his anger to blaming, and now he blames God. Well, God, I cannot believe that you're saying that I'm responsible for my brother. We sin, we hide, we blame. And the Lord God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. He gave opportunity for repentance. But now comes consequence and justice. It's like your dad was a farmer, you were a farmer, and now for the rest of your life, you are not a farmer. The ground is not going to cooperate. You can go and try and farm it if you want, and the ground is not going to give you what you want. No more. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground. And from your face I shall be hidden. In other words, if I leave here, this is the only place I've ever worshipped you, God. It's the only place I've ever talked to you, God. If I leave this place, am I not going to have you anymore? And he says, and I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Now, I don't know who he's afraid of. There, there's not too many humans at this point. But pretty much everybody knows him, which means, think about it, everyone knows who he is. Everyone knows what he's done. Everyone knows why he's gone. He's gone because he killed his brother. He says, if anyone finds me, they're going to kill me. There was one commentator I was reading 
that said, every time we sin, we live with the futile hope that, that we're going to get maximum enjoyment from our sin and the minimum penalty. And it rarely ever works out that way. And here, Cain, that's what, what he thought. Now he says, I just can't bear this. I can't bear this. I'm going to be sent away. I'm not going to have the land anymore. I'm not going to have you, God, anymore. And if anyone finds me, they're going to kill me. And so God responds in a beautiful way. He says, then the Lord God said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. You touch him, I'm going to touch you seven times harder. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. We don't know uh, what the mark is, but he marked him somehow so that everyone knew who he was. And, and this again is the character of God on display. Cain, Cain sinned, he hid, he blamed, and God gave consequences and grace, justice and mercy. Because what did he deserve? He deserved death. God ran him out, gave him a huge consequence, but then spared him and said, no one else can touch him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. And Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. And when he built, and when he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. And no, I have no idea where he got his wife. Uh, I honestly can't answer uh, the question. I don't know where uh, the wife came from, but he knew her in a biblical sense and had children. And then it says... To Enoch was, was, born, uh, was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahu, uh, Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech, and Lamech took two wives. The name of one was Ada, and the name of the other was Zillah. He got both sides of the alphabet with his two wives. And this polygamy, this multiple uh, wife thing, is, is showing up pretty pretty early on in the scriptures, and it's why some people point to it and say, aha, the Bible has it all over the place, but no one ever commanded this, and this becomes a huge problem in Genesis. Uh, we're going to get to that, just not this week. Know that this becomes a huge problem. Adah bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and, li in tents and livestock, and his father's uh, his brother's name was Jubal, and he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. And Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, and the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nema. Let's just stop there for a second. You know, a lot of times we skip over the ge ge genealogies because they're boring. But, but listen, if we stop and consider them, we often discover that they have something for us. And one of the things is this, we're, we're all created in the image of God. Whether you're a follower of, of, of God or not, you're created in the image of God, which means that we create. And there, and there are, are great things that our culture does our artistically and scientifically and culturally and, and, uh, that are beautiful creations because, because we're created in the image of God and we reflect Him. 
And so here in this little city that has been established, they build musical instruments and new industry. This was, the, this was the first tech boom, if you like. This was the first Silicon Valley right here. All of this new stuff popped up. And Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. In other words, now he has moved from sinning and hiding and blaming to sinning and bragging and declaring that he is greater than God. He's like, you know, God says that he's going to bring seven times the punishment. Well, I'm bringing 77 times. This guy touched me, killed him. And depending on how you read this, uh, he, he may have killed two people. He's like, I'm just letting you know I'm more powerful than God is. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And yes, she named him appointed. Uh, that's what Seth means. Again, Eve was a literalist. So to Seth, also a son was born. And he called his name Enosh, and at the, that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Don't miss those three important words, at that time. At what time? At a time of wickedness, where sexuality was going sideways, where marriage was being redefined, where people were bragging that they were greater than God, and there were all kinds of new gadgets and new music, it's at that time. And a lot of us, we look at our culture and we say, this is a terrible age in which we live. Wickedness and sexuality and redefinition of marriage and people bragging that they're greater than God and tech booms and music. Listen, this is page four of the Bible. And yes, there are ways in which things just keep rolling and steamrolling as, 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 as more and more of us live and more and more of, a, of the sin becomes rampant on our planet. But when we look at these stories and we hear how wicked it was, it's just so easy for us to point the, our fingers. And this is why I'm always a little bit uncomfortable with this phrase. And I know some of you have used this phrase. And the phrase is this, love the sinner and hate the sin. Now, I'll tell you why I'm uncomfortable with that phrase. And I know the heart behind it, and I think there's a lot that is commendable um, about the heart behind it. I really do. But when you say love the sinner, hate the sin, you're unintentionally saying that sinner, that guy's sin. And it zeroes in on the one sinner right there. And you're just talking about him. And you're saying, I'm going to love him even though he's sinning. And it fails to account for the fact that sin is crouching at all of our doors. You see, it's, it's easy for us to point our finger at Cain and say, at least I'm not like Cain. Really? What do you know about Cain? You know the one story from the worst day of Cain's life. How would you like to take the worst day of your life, the day where you committed 
the greatest sin that you've ever committed and have it written down in a book that for thousands of years, billions of people will read about your one sin. We point the finger at Cain. At least he brought an offering to God. 20% of people who say they follow Jesus this weekend at church will do what they always do. They won't give anything back to God. At least Cain gave. He brought an offering. It's easy to point our finger. And when we say love the sinner and hate the sin, we're just pointing a finger. That's why I like a little derivation of it. It may sound like I'm just playing with words, but this is what I like. Love people. Hate sin. Love people. All people. Just like God did. Love people and hate sin. Not just that guy's sin. But also because you've seen the devastation of sin, the devastation of sin in your neighborhood, in your community, in your family, in your life because of your sin. Because sin is crouching at all of our doors. And try as he might, Cain could not figure out a way to overcome sin. And when, when God, even when God warns him, and, and God warns him ten, tenderly, he still kills his own brother. And his brother's blood, that blood spoke of, of this out-of-control anger and sin and judgment and consequences. And that's why it's so beautiful that we're reminded in Hebrews 12 that Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and his sprinkled blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In other words, Jesus' shed blood on the cross for us speaks of forgiveness and justice, which was poured out on Jesus. And consequence for our sin, which was poured out on Jesus. And mercy and grace and forgiveness. And so instead of pointing our, our finger at that guy who, who does that, let's just declare the good news of Jesus, who, who never sinned and took all of our sin and place our faith in him and him alone. We're going to pray in a moment, and then we're going to come uh, to the Lord's table together. Just as a way as we prepare for the Lord's table, I want you to consider that really the question of Genesis 4 is how will justice and mercy meet in the story? That's the question. How will justice and mercy ever meet in our lives? How do we, how do we get free of, our, of the situation in our lives, get free of sin and slavery? You see, God had promised to Eve that through her family, through one of her Heirs, one would come who would deal with the issue that had begun when, with her and her husband. One would come who would deal with this stuff and who would be struck, but in doing so would, be, would crush evil. Who would somehow deal with sin once and for all. And for Eve, she had one son, Cain. But listen, Cain is lost to her in the end. He becomes a murderer. Sin dominates his life. He's sent away. He becomes a wanderer. And Abel is lost because the first brother murdered the second. And, and so for Eve, all hope is like being extinguished. 
The promise that God gives in chapter 3 seems like it has already come to an end. I mean, within one generation, it seems to be all over. And that's why such an important verse in this passage is verse 25. You see, hope is birthed anew with the arrival of another son, Seth. And it's through his line that Jesus will one day be born. And you see, this morning, you might be far away from God. You might have done some of the most terrible things that you just feel like you can never admit it to anybody. Or you might outwardly be very impressive. You may attend church every week, and everything seems absolutely great. But inwardly, you are a slave to a very dark, addictive habit. And hope seems lost. Whichever scenario you're in, hope for you just seems lost. You just think, how can I ever come to God? Or how can I ever get free and admit where I am? Hope seems lost to you. But Genesis 4 teaches us that even in the darkest moments, God is weaving hope and grace and mercy. There's a psalm, Psalm 112, that has this beautiful phrase. It says that even in the darkness, the light dawns. And God is bringing grace and hope to the forefront of the story, even here in the early, early pages of Scripture. You see, we needed one who, like Cain, faced sin, but who mastered it, who, who would lead a perfect life. See, Cain is dominated by sin, but we needed one who could face it and yet master it and lead a perfect life. But we needed one like Abel, whose blood would cry out to God, whose blood God would hear. We needed a, a death that speaks a better word than Abel's. See, Abel's blood cries out for justice. It speaks out for the need for a penalty to be paid. But we needed one whose blood establishes justice and whose blood speaks forgiveness, love, and mercy. And that's what we're going to celebrate together as we come to the table this morning. So let's pray.